Beloved, if you are familiar with the New Testament letters, uh, you may be aware that most of them, certainly in the case of the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews does this as well, that very often they emphasize more in the beginning of the book, laying a foundation of the doctrine by which we are saved, by which we are sanctified. And then the latter portion of the letter is where they have more of an emphasis on application. Uh, we can think of the book of Ephesians, six chapters evenly divided down the middle. Uh, well, this wasn't invented by the Apostle Paul. This, wasn't, this dynamic wasn't invented by the author of Hebrews. Uh, if you consider, for example, the book of Leviticus, 27 chapters, a simple outline of the book of Leviticus is chapters 1 through 17, God lays out the way to God through sacrifice. And then chapters 18 through 27 describe the walk with God, which is sanctification. And what we have in 1 Thessalonians 4, as the Apostle Paul turns the page from chapter 3 to chapter 4, is namely that. He's moving from doctrine to duty. Now, in the case of 1 Thessalonians, it doesn't have the doctrine-rich kind of content that he brings out in the letter to the Ephesians or the letter to Romans, for example. The first three chapters was certainly around doctrine, but there was a very heavy relational aspect as the Apostle Paul was forced to give a defense of their ministry for the cause of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. But even now, as he goes to chapter 4, he moves from the right belief that was kind of laid out before and was preached by Paul, Silas, and Timothy before to the right behavior that is expected from the Thessalonians. Nothing new. It was things that they had taught there before, but he reaffirms it, reestablishes, and expands upon it. Right belief must lead to right behavior. In the first three chapters, he taught them how to believe, and certainly when he was there, now he focuses more on how to live. And beloved, this is because the counsel and plan of God are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's even why we see commonality between an Old Testament book, an Old Covenant book like Leviticus, and a New Covenant letter, one of the earliest New Covenant letters, the letter to the Thessalonians. And beloved, as we consider the impact, the ministry of the word by which we are saved from the penalty of sin, by which we are saved from the power of sin in sanctification, we should understand that God lays out principles, guidelines that regulate and govern our belief and govern our behavior. And when we think of these regulations, we should understand that they are restrictive, but they are not oppressive. Rather, the regulation, the regulatory power of the Word of God is liberating. It's emancipating. It's part of the package of the gift of salvation from where we've been saved from and delivered from the penalty of sin and even are being delivered from the power of sin. We are delivered from the power of the devil and we are delivered from the fear of death. We know that God knows all things, yet he erases even the record of our sin in Christ. And as we consider this, as we consider our walk, our Christian life, we should realize that all of us are, in a sense, stumbling and bumbling through life. We are all works under construction. But by God's grace, we are not what we were. We are under new management and that is what God brings out in beautiful, vivid language in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Simply put, when we are given new life, it has an accompanying, accompanying new lifestyle. 
Beloved, listen as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter, one, or chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, the passage that we have here this morning. This is the word of God. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as, how, as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, what we have here, the flow here, this movement we have here, it's really two simple, it's a twofold simple outline. The will of God in the first two verses and the beginning of verse 3 and the call of God in the rest of, chapter, of uh, verse 3 through verse 8. And part of this is answering the question that anyone, all of us on this side of eternity and on this side of glory should ask is how can I live victoriously in a corrupt world? How can I live a pure life in an immoral society? God answers these here. So first, beloved, let's look at the will of God. And what we have in the first two verses and that first statement in the third verse is a summary outline, summary will of God, which is captured at the beginning of three. The will of God is your sanctification, my sanctification. And this first portion here spans across all of chapter four. When we get into the second portion of verse three and forward, the call to God, it has a very specific targeted application. But as we consider the will of God, we can ask the question, and maybe we ask either with these words or even just kind of in our heart, we may ask the question, what is God's will for my life? We might do that in the sense of, should I be interested in this person or that person as a potential husband or wife? Or should I take this job and move to this location? And there's all kinds of good question, good diagnostic things that can be examined to help give light to those types of calls. But when we think of the will of God, it is very simple and very straightforward. God's will for your life and for my life is our sanctification. The will of God, beloved, is not secret and hidden. It's clear and revealed. And what we have in the first two verses is a source of your sanctification, namely the ministry of the word and then a summary of the sanctification at the beginning of verse 3. Let's first look at the source of sanctification. Again, the ministry of the word. You see, the word of God that you have there in your hands gives you your marching orders. And it doesn't just give you your marching orders. The word of God enables you to march in the command of Christ, in those marching orders that God has given you. Look at how he begins in verse 1. 
Finally then, brethren, furthermore, as for the rest. I love preacher Paul who says finally and then has two chapters of material left to go. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. We request, that's more brethren, that's more coming alongside together. And then we exhort you, there's a little authority in that as well. We Request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction, the point here is what Paul's telling them, what I'm going to say from this point forward is not new instruction. You heard this from me. You heard this from Paul, Silas, and Timothy those several weeks that they were in Thessalonica, three weeks in the synagogue, and then several weeks after that ministering to and reaching out to the Gentiles. So, What Paul is reminding them is that when he was there, he gave them the essence of the good news, and he also gave them the essence of the good life, which he's going to expand upon and elaborate here. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk. In Scripture, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, one's walk describes one's life, one's lifestyle, one's behavior, one's habit. Uh, the, the Hebrew derrick, the path that was carved out by the repetitive, habitual pattern of a person. Uh, the people that would follow a rabbi, a teacher, they would follow in his footsteps to re- receive the instruction and to follow the example. That's part of the imagery that he's talking about here. And what we are called to with a holy walk in Christ is simply steady progress, normally in an unspectacular fashion. And this is the same kind of dynamic that Paul did exercise and point the Ephesians to, for example, when he made his transition there from the end of chapter 3 to chapter 4 in Ephesians 4.1, Paul exhorted the Ephesians I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. It's like the Puritan Matthew Henry said, good talk without good walk will not bring you to heaven. Now, to be sure, we are saved by faith alone apart from the works of the law. But the faith that saves us is not alone. It will impact, it will change our walk. And He says how you ought to walk and please God. When the word ought there, this is not a suggestion. This is not an option. It's not a good idea. This is a divine imperative, dei. It's a necessary binding obligation both to walk in this manner and to please God. And when we think of pleasing God, we are reminded that we, excuse me, exist for God. God does not exist for us. Our primary motivation, even when we think of a holy, righteous walk, even when we think of now with the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can obey the commandments God has given them. We understand that our primary motivation in this walk is not to obey the law. Rather, the primary motivation is to please the lawgiver. And as a result of that motivation in seeking to please the lawgiver, we will keep his law. The former is the motivation, the latter is the result. And then I love how Paul wraps it up. He says, parenthetically, just as you actually do walk. 
we remember that these new believers in Thessalonica were a model example church. And the Apostle Paul loved to give praise where praise is due. So he affirms and encourages his flock and then encourages them to excel yet more. And I love that dynamic. That's been one of my pet peeves for a long time, whether it's in church ministry or even in the corporate world or in any location when people say, well, we need to do this, and we're already doing that. I think it's much better to say, we're doing this, but let's do it better. Let's excel yet more. Let's figure out how to rise to greater heights in what we are already doing. That's the motif of the Apostle Paul. And just a few words to bring us back to the context and the environment that this Thessalonian church was in. Recognize there were no Christian traditions in Thessalonica prior to Paul and company setting foot in Thessalonica because the gospel had never been there before until they arrived. And so these Relatively speaking, brand new believers are fighting against the cultural headwinds of the day in a far greater, more significant fashion than you and I can think of. And then even in terms of placing ourselves and to maybe get a little better understanding and experiential awareness, imagine if all the Christian instruction that you've ever received only began around January 2023. That's the kind of situation, that's the kind of group of believers that he is writing to here. <clears throat> he continues on, verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So even here, in one of the earliest writings of the Apostle Paul, he just loved military imagery. And in the same way that a command would be given down the military chain of command, that is basically what he is describing here. The main point here is that he wants to remind these precious Thessalonians that the commands he gave them when he was there before, and even what will come forth from here, is not, are not of human origin. They find their origin and beginning in the heart and mind of God eternal of Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful application for us. What a beautiful empowering truth that this is the divine authority and power of the faithful ministry of the word of God from the pulpit, in the Sunday school classes, Bible hours, in the men's ministry and the women's ministry, in the children's ministry, the youth and college ministry, in evangelism. This is the authority and power of the unfettered word of God through frail men and frail women for God's glory, for our joy, and for the salvation of souls. So, beloved, the source of sanctification that Paul brings out in these two verses is the ministry of the word. And this is the very same dynamic that Lord Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, when Jesus in his humanity was praying to his father, John 17, 17, he said, Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That is the source of the sanctification that you and I enjoy even today. And then, somewhat briefly, the summary of the will of God, which is sanctification at the beginning of verse 3. And that simple statement, the will of God, your sanctification, that is God's will for every man. This is an absolute summary statement on your Christian walk. And your sanctification, this is the first New Testament reference, chronologically speaking, of this 
word. And in fact, it's in, in noun form, it's much more frequent in 1 Thessalonians than in any other New Testament writing, and in fact, appears three times in our passage. But the sanctification he's talking about here is our present sanctification. If we are a born-again man or woman, there was a positional sanctification. There was a positional consecration, separation, setting apart where God plucked us from the perils of our sin and took us out of the family of Satan, adopted us into his family. There was a positional sanctification, but what he's talking about here is the process of sanctification, of being transformed from glory to glory. This is practical holiness, not positional holiness that he is speaking of here. Beloved, this kind of sanctification is a process by which we are taken from what we were to what we have become. We could also look at it this way. Sanctification is the process, and using the parallel, very similar word, holiness is the product. This is where old ways and habits are done away with, and new ways and habits have come, formed by the will of God. These new ways and practices are initiated, embraced, adopted, and by God's grace and mercy, owned in our lives. Paul says, you're making good progress. Come on, let's do better. Going back to, at the end of verse 1, so that you may excel still more. The English Standard Version, King James Version, NIV, I'll say that you may excel more and more. Uh, Derek Thomas, Thomas, the Scottish preacher, said, this is M&M sanctification, more and more sanctification. What Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, what God is saying to my beloved, our beloved Santan Bible Church is you are fruit-bearing branches. Let's bear even more and more, excel still more, more and more fruit. <clears throat> There's a progressive growing dimension to holiness as we fight sin and as we live faithfully. And Again, hearkening back to the original audience, remember this fledgling congregation isn't just surviving in the eye of the hurricane of immorality that was swirling in Thessalonica. They were thriving in that environment, but they must excel still more. And so must you, and so must I, so must we. Now, as we transition from this general statement of the will of God, which again spans across all of chapter 4, we can imagine this was a letter. It was uh, read to them. They didn't uh, read. There was only one letter, so it would be read in their hearing. And we can imagine in their mind there might be some kind of dialogue going up to this point. They might say, okay, we understand it. We get it. We're supposed to be sanctified. Uh, but Apostle Paul, can you give us some concrete examples? We can imagine Paul responding, saying, sure. Let's talk about sex, work, and death. Three of the most foundational, fundamental topics that every human must deal with. The first two, sex and work, are moral and behavioral. Uh, death, towards the end of chapter 4, is where Paul gets more into a doctrinal dimension, but with a very targeted application for the purpose of encouragement and comfort. And... All of this is part of what we read back in verse 10 of chapter 3. Do you remember what he said there? Night and day, praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. 
Now, when he said complete what is lacking in your faith, that wasn't an insult. He wasn't saying you're a bunch of little spiritual runts and stunted growth. He's saying on this side of eternity, on the side of glory, we are all a work in process. And the way in which the faith is completed, is added to, is more and more truth. And that's precisely what he is doing here. And the specific point, as we move from God's will, his general will of sanctification, to God's call, his specific call to sexual purity. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, this holiness has hands and feet and eyes and ears. And it must saturate the totality of who we are, the kind of men we are, the kind of women that we are. So the will of God is sanctification. The call of God here is sexual purity. And beloved, Paul has us in his crosshairs here. This was written 2,000 years ago, but this could have been written this morning. Couldn't it have? What he says is, he basically says, and actually before I say what he says, let me make this statement. Christianity is not limited to, it's not defined by a list of do's and don'ts. But having said that, a list of do's and don'ts can be very helpful. And that is precisely what he gives us here with the rest of verse 3 through verse 8. The three do's that he brings out here is constrain yourself, control yourself, and cleanse yourself. First, he says, constrain yourself. And Paul is writing from Corinth, and he's writing to Thessalonica. These environs, these environments that he was writing from and to were dominated by immorality and vice. From Corinth, where Paul was writing, there was a temple of Aphrodite. Uh, Aphrodite, Greek, uh, Venus in the Rome, uh, in the Roman world. And it was a grotesque, immoral situation. So both Corinth and Thessalonica, they didn't just cry sexual freedom. They incorporated grotesque sexual immorality into their so-called worship. In the temple of Aphrodite, there were over a thousand prostitutes, both male and female. That was the environment in which these people, that this was the swirling, raging storm of the hurricane of immorality where this little church was an eye of calm and peace and trust in the Lord. In his book, History of European Morals, from Augustus to Charlemagne, William Leckie wrote these words, quote, there's probably never been a period when vice was more extravagant or uncontrolled than it was under the Caesars, end quote. Now, he did write that some years ago, and sadly, as we see our wretched society here of the Western world, we seem to be rushing headlong, trying to catch up, but we're not there yet. And what he says, look at verse 3, that is, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Restrain from sexual immorality. Restrain from porneia is the Greek word from which we get the English word pornography. This literally most classically meant fornication, but by this time, at the time of Paul's writing in the Greco-Roman world, it would be used to describe any kind of sexual sin. This is capturing the rotten stench that goes with sexual sin of any kind. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, prostitution, pedophilia, adultery, transsexualism, premarital and extramarital sex, abortion, casual sex, and so-called safe sex. It describes anything and everything outside our good God's good plan for sex and intimacy. Beloved, dear friend, 
Sex is a good gift from our good God, rightly channeled and carefully controlled. God designed a good and godly appetite for intimacy, which can be satisfied in good and godly ways. And it boils down to one very simple, very straightforward, very one non-negotiable truth. Sex belongs in the heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong commitment of marriage, period, and nowhere else. And sexual intimacy is good and worthy of celebration. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 3, God has created marriage to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. Now, to be sure, marriage that he's speaking of here uh, comprises far more than just intimacy, but it does include intimacy, to be sure. And what he says here is abstain from anything outside of these defined limits by God. And the word, English word abstain, that's kind of a sterile word. He's describing a clean cut, an amputation. I can remember when I was around 14 or 15, I had my tonsils taken out. And so they were there before, and then they were gone. No more to be seen. That's what he's talking about here. This is a clean cut, total abstinence. Now, some people might either ask the question or make the statement, well, all things in moderation, all things in moderation, is that statement, all things in moderation, supported by the Bible? Well, yes, all lawful things, all lawful things, things that are not lawful. What he's describing here, this is abstention. This is not moderation. There may be other areas. I will allow myself to have some processed sugar in a donut or something like that. So you can think of gluttony. You can think of alcohol. You can think of many other areas where perhaps moderation may be acceptable. But in this domain, there is no moderation. Not so here. And mark this. This includes what you do with your body and what you do with your mind. And I'm not just talking to the men. God's not just talking to the men. He's talking to the men and the women. Now, to be sure, male and female, men and women are different. But this challenge on this side of eternity is seeing Christ as he really is. We all fight this battle in different ways. And there's so many examples from Scripture. One of my favorite, perhaps yours as well, we can think of Joseph. Joseph, when Potiphar's wife came to him to try to seduce him, he didn't negotiate with her. He didn't try to evangelize her. He didn't casually stroll away. He fled. He hightailed it out of here. He cut that off as quick and as sharply as he could. Beloved, things that aren't lawful, Avoid them like the plague. Cut them out. Make a clean amputation. Like an oncologist, there's no accommodation of a little bit. Get it all out. Cut it all out. Radiate it. Chemo kill it. That is what he says here, the counsel of God, that we must constrain ourselves. The second do is he says control yourself. Now, <clears throat> I love the Apostle Paul because occasionally he will simply say stop sinning and do it. Don't do it. Stop it. Ephesians 4, 28, let him who steals steal no longer, period. But usually he will expand upon it. So here he says abstain from any kind of sexual immorality, and he expands from it. He continues, look at verse 4, so that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, in holiness and 
honor. Uh, the word vessel, this is used in the New Testament for the body. It's used that way in 2 Corinthians 4. It's used that way in 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 3, you may remember, God gives instruction to the husbands. He said, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel. Meaning the wife's body, physical body, is weaker. The husband's body is a stronger vessel. So again, when he says here in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 4, know how to possess or control his own vessel, his, own, his or her own body in sanctification and honor, in holiness and honor. Holiness is due God. Honor is due another. It could be spouse, uh, your spouse first, to be sure, if you are married. Your children, your parents, your brothers, your sisters. Your, if you're not married, your future husband or wife. Beloved, dear friend, purity brings honor. Impurity brings dishonor. This is what the author of Hebrews had in mind when he wrote in Hebrews 13, verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. And beloved, dear friend, understand this. True freedom is not found in flouting the boundaries God has established. True freedom is found in finding true purpose. And I love the illustration Solomon gave back in Proverbs 25, verse 28. He said, a man who has no control over his spirit is like a city where the walls have been broken down and they're defenseless. Or we can think of a railroad car. If a railroad car has been derailed, is she now emancipated? Is she now free? No, the railroad car was designed to run on the tracks. She can accelerate. She can do what she was intended to do, what she was designed to do by staying on the rails. And in the same way, sex has a God-given context. Again, monogamous, heterosexual, sacrificial, faithful in body and spirit marriage. And it's forbidden. Sex is forbidden in every other context. A very Simple application, stay in your lane. Stay in the lane that God has defined. So, constrain yourself, control yourself. Jump to verse 7 for the third and final do. Cleanse yourself. The sanctification is a position. Sanctification is a process. And sanctification is a pursuit. Now, only God, from a positional standpoint, only God can positionally cleanse us. Only God can cleanse us and place us in Christ, set us apart. But in the process of sanctification, we cannot, to be sure, do it on our own. But we do have responsibility. That's why in verse 7, <clears throat> God says through Paul, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. Ergo, he has called us for the purpose of purity. Impurity, that's a word that was used by Jesus in the Gospels to describe rotting flesh in a grave. But the purity, the holiness that we are called to, it's the same dynamic that God said to the nation of Israel in Leviticus that Peter, the apostle, brings out in 1 Peter 1.15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And it's the same word from which we get sanctification. Now, 
We need to understand this, especially if you're here and you're not a Christian. We're so glad you're here with us. And dear friend, understand this. This kind of holiness is not, and maybe some of us who are Christians need to be reminded, this is not the sneaking suspicion that somebody somewhere might be having fun. Okay? This is not making the statement, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with those who do. No, the holiness he's talking about here in this context is don't degrade God's good gift of sexual intimacy by doing it at the wrong time with the wrong person. Rather, thank God by enjoying it at the right time with the right person. Again, through Solomon, God commands, Proverbs 5, verse 15, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. And I think you can connect the imagery yourself to understand what he's saying there. Now, A lot of the weight of what I've been talking here has been geared towards marriage. Uh, But if you are here or if you do know, in 1 Corinthians 7, we all have the gift. We all have the gift either of marriage or singleness. If you come from a background where you see a single person and say, do you have the gift? You need to erase that in your brain and put some new information in there. We all have the gift either of marriage or singleness. So it begs the question in the context here, what about us singles? And I can't think of a better answer to that, uh, I mean, outside of Scripture, than uh, John Stott, who was a lifelong single and a great commentator. And in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians 4, these are the words that I read in my study this week that I bring here, by way of application to beloved single brothers and sisters. This is what Stott wrote, quote, We too must accept this apostolic teaching, however hard it may seem as God's good purpose, both for us and for society. We will not become a bundle of frustrations and inhibitions if we embrace God's standard, but only if we rebel against it. Christ's yoke is easy, provided we submit to it. Multitudes of Christian singles, both men and women, could testify to this. Alongside a natural loneliness accompanied sometimes by acute pain, We can find joyful self-fulfillment in the self-giving service of God and other people, end quote. So, beloved, that is the list of do's that God gives us here in his word. There's a list of three don'ts. Don't desire, don't defraud, don't deny. Go back to verse 5. The first don't is don't desire. More to the point, don't desire what's not lawful. Verse 5 He says, not in lustful passion. Lust and passion. Two very intense words. Two words, both of which are used in the New Testament for either good or bad. When you combine these together, it becomes even stronger. He's talking about an overpowering lustful desire for what's not lawful. But he continues, and this is fascinating, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles. Now, Pause there for a second. Isn't this fascinating? Do you remember what's the makeup? What's the demographic of the Thessalonian church? Primarily, predominantly Gentile. So he's telling a bunch of Gentile believers, don't act like Gentiles. What does he mean by this? Well, the qualifier is, if you continue, don't, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is the devastating description of every man or every woman without God. You see, left to ourselves, morals become values and truth becomes opinion. 
And the pagan Gentiles of the Greco-Roman world knew gods, with a little g, who were personifications of their own imagination and lusts. It's the same kind of dynamic with the other earliest letter from the Apostle Paul. In Galatians 4.8, he said, he reminded the Galatian believers of their life prior to their salvation. When you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods, end quote. So again, the Greco-Roman world knew little g gods that were personifications of their own imagination and lust. And I think of the uh, religion of Mormonism. I think of the religion of Islam, both of which have this kind of grotesque sexual imagery of an eternal heaven. Paul says, don't think like that. Don't think like that. But But what is this dynamic of Gentiles? Remember, under the Old Covenant, there were Jews and Gentiles. The two groupings under the New Covenant are saved and unsaved. Now, there still are Jews and Gentiles among the saved and Jews and Gentiles among the unsaved. But the primary top-tier distinction in the New Covenant is between the saved and the unsaved. So what Paul is saying here is, don't act like godless pagans. Don't think like they think. Don't act like they act. Don't think with the body the way they think with the body. Don't not think with the head the way they don't think with the head. And beloved, dear friend, the world is lying to you when it says you'll find freedom in crossing over the boundaries God has set in place. And I love what Alistair Begg said about that. He said, that's stupid counsel from stupid people. He said it with a charming Scottish accent, so sounded a little better when he said it. You see, the world rushes headlong to embrace perversion, but we avoid it. We abstain it. That's why we're crashing against the current of the day. And this is nothing new. The evil one wraps his poisonous lies in the form of a shiny fruit so that the undiscerning eat it and die. That's what is at stake. And by the way, No sinful sex is safe sex. There is no safe sex other than sex that's in the confines of God's good gift of marriage. And, beloved, the faith that justified you, your justifying faith is a lust-fighting faith. The faith that justifies is a faith that wages war with lust. And, mark this, the best way to fight lust is to feed faith. Fight fire with fire. Fight the smaller fire with the more powerful fire. And what we have here is knowing God is the pathway to sexual purity. Growing in our understanding, completing what is lacking by more truth that we understand, that we minister, that we share and love with one another and call one another to account. That's the pathway to sexual purity. And true sexual freedom only comes through knowing the Lord of glory. And one last thought on this. Understand this, marriage is not some form of legalized lust. The kind of God-honoring and spouse-loving intimacy that's described here is sacrificial, it's not selfish. Where each spouse thinks of, considers first, and prioritizes the other before himself or herself. So, don't desire what's not lawful. Second, don't. Don't defraud your brother or sister. Understand this, sexual sin is never 
a personal and private matter. It always involves others. And what we have is a command and a warning in verse 6. And that no man transgress, this is the command, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Transgress, cross over a boundary that has been established. Trespass, defraud, steal from another through deception or unscrupulous practice. You see, sexual sin is not just an offense against holiness and honor. It's the act of a thief against a brother or sister, taking what is rightfully theirs for one's own selfish purpose. Now, in Thessalonians, he uses the word brother or brethren very often, and the context, the immediate context is Christian men and women. But here, I think Paul is expanding it just a little bit. To be sure, that's the first application. But the word brother, brethren, Adelphi basically is used in the New Testament elsewhere for a broader level of brother man. And so the first application here is brother or sister in Christ, but it's expanded. It's brother man, brother woman at the broader level because sexual sin, again, is never just about you. There's a mother involved, a father involved, maybe a praying grandmother a brother, a sister, a child, a husband or a wife, or a future husband and wife. That's the command. The warning, look at the rest of verse 6. A grave warning because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. He's the punisher. The Lord is the one who will exact a penalty from. What Paul is saying here is that unrepentant, sexually immoral people face the unbridled wrath of God. And the avenger here is not God the Father, it's the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus will be the avenger that will exact justice and will impose and pour out the unbridled wrath. That's why Paul wrote, for example, to the church in Rome, Romans 12, 19, leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And beloved, This is nothing new to these Thessalonians because look at the rest of verse 6. He says, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, this is nothing new. Dear friend, if you're here again this morning and Jesus Christ, we're thrilled you're here if you're not a Christian. And understand this, Christian belief and practice is not derived from contemporary culture. Belief and behavior for a Christian is derived from the black and white, crystal clear word of God. And in this domain, God could not be more clear. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Namely, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. So what are we to do? What's a man to do? What's a woman to do? John Owen, the Puritan, in his book, Overcoming Your Sin and Temptation, writes these words. And he brings out, he's bringing the fearsome nature of God and the standard of his law, and then he wraps it up with the pathway that a repentant Christian man or woman has in going to the Lord. This is what Owen wrote, quote, Load your conscience with the guilt of sin. Not only consider that it has a guilt, but load your conscience with the guilt of its actual eruptions and disturbances. Bring the holy law of God into your conscience. Lay your corruption to it. Pray that you may be affected with it. Consider the holiness, spirituality, fiery severity, inwardness, 
absoluteness of the law and see how you could stand before it? That's a rhetorical question. We can't. But being, this is the good news, being thus affected with your sin in the next place, get a constant longing, breathing after deliverance from the power of it. Get your heart then into a panting and breathing frame. Long sigh, cry out. You know the example of David, end quote. David, King David, committed adultery, and he followed it up with murder. And yet he had true repentance captured in his great Psalm 51, verse 4, where he's speaking to the Lord against you. You alone I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Beloved, fire in the fireplace is wonderful. It brings warmth, calm, comfort, and peace. Intimacy in marriage is pure, holy, undefiled, and without pollution. The fire outside the fireplace brings horrible destruction. A, blazing, a raging blaze can destroy a home. In the same way, immorality leaves a trail of broken out Burned out, broken out hearts, unwanted pregnancies, nasty diseases, and damaged capacity to enjoy the permanent blessing of marriage. So don't desire what is not lawful. Don't defraud your brother or sister. The final don't is don't deny God. I mean, sexual, as we just saw, defraud your brother, what Paul just brought out, that is a sin against someone. There is no private sin. It is a sin against someone. But the far greater sin is against God. Look at verse 8. That's why he writes, Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God. He who rejects, set aside, nullify, ignore, treat as nothing. Don't think, beloved, if you're a Christian, don't think you can park Jesus somewhere and then go engage in a cesspool of immorality for 15 minutes and then come back and pick Jesus up. You can't park him at the curb. You drag him in there with you. And I've used this illustration before because it's a good illustration, I think, of the pathway to victory, and it's also just a good life principle. Uh, women and children, if an evil person tries to capture you and put you in their car and take you somewhere, fight to the death right there. Fight to the death in the first location because if this evil man takes you to a second death location, you're dead. And the point is, your chances and odds in your fight to death in the first location is better than your odds in the fight to the death in the second location. Application, in the same way, brother or sister, when temptation raises its ugly head, fight to the death right away. Because the longer <clears throat> it wins, the more difficult the battle, the greater the fall, the more tangled the web, the greater the defilement. And what a great providential plug for the purity conference that we have coming up this Saturday, led by a David and Crossroads, but for the entire church. Now, this is very grave. This is even, as Paul says, a solemn warning. But even at the end, in the midst of this grave warning, there is a word of great comfort and encouragement. Namely, you are not in this alone. The God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, it's interesting. Normally in the New Testament, when it talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit, it's spoken of in the past tense. Here, 
the apostle uses it in the present tense, who gives the Holy Spirit. The idea here is that you receive the Holy Spirit when you were saved, but there's a continuing presence, a continuing activity, a continuing impact. The protective ministry of the Holy Spirit for his children, such as in Romans chapter 8, is at work here. And the point is, he doesn't leave you on your own. You are not in that battle on your own. Dear friend, you may be, dear brother or sister, you may be struggling with this sin right here as I speak, not right this second, maybe right this second, but at a time like this, understand this, sexual immorality is not the unforgivable sin. There is always room for repentance and forgiveness. The blood of Jesus which was shed at the cross, cleanses, forgives, and rebuilds, reconciles, and even over time can rebuild trust. Get a godly man involved. Get a godly woman involved. If you're a married couple, get a godly couple for counseling. And how beautiful is the body of Christ, or even going back to last week, how beautiful and powerful is the body of Christ. And I've seen this where the full weight of the church is brought to bear on a situation in very confined, discreet, appropriate, limited channels, but the whole weight of the church is brought. It's a beautiful thing. In end, beloved, in Christ there is always hope for torn and scarred lives. This is serious business. This is a serious war. We need God's grace. We need God's presence to fight this together. You are not alone because God is giving you his Holy Spirit, and you're not alone because you're in the body of Christ. We need his sovereign grace, which invades a cold, dead, stony heart and awakens it. I awoke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Lord, don't leave us in our own will. Overcome our rebellion. Not my way, not my will be done. But Lord, your way, your will, your path of purity be done for your glory, even for my joy, for the blessing of my brothers and sisters, and for a witness to a lost and dying world. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your mercy. Lord, there is nothing new under the sun. We thank you, Lord God, for your standard of holiness. Thank you, Lord, that you do not leave any sin undealt with, unpunished. We praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus. When we think of our own sin, past or even present and in the future, we understand that you paid the penalty for all of that at the cross. We are eternally grateful. Lord, help us to excel still more in all these areas. Bless our beloved Santan Bible Church. Bless the men and women. Give victory where there seems no hope. Give joy where there seems despair. Build up reconciliation and trust where it has been shattered we praise you and thank you lord that you are the one that holds our hand and we don't stumble and crush our face because you care for us you provide for us thank you for the hope of the good news of the gospel it's for your glory and for your honor lord jesus that we pray and that we sing amen